What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the PC Speaking Podcast. I'm excited that you're here, as always. Uh, glad to have you along. We are in the middle of a series on types and shadows. And well, to kick off today, we'll define those terms again because that's something we need to do in each week as we go through this. Um, types and shadows in general are symbolic representations that point to a greater spiritual truth or reality. And types are Old Testament persons, things, or events that serve as a pattern or symbol of something in the New Testament. Shadows are Old Testament elements that provide an outline or silhouette of something that becomes more clear in the New Testament. And hopefully that's helpful in explaining what we're talking about when we talk about types and shadows. Last week, we left off with the Passover as Israel was leaving slavery in Egypt. God tells the Israelites that everything will go well um, if they follow what he tells them to do. And he says that you know several times throughout the Old Testament. And after the Passover, Israel leaves Egypt and they struggle to do what God says, to follow his commands and his instructions. And that's an ongoing struggle for them. And um, you know they kind of bounce back and forth. Sometimes things go well for them. Sometimes things don't go well for them, depending on how they um, treat what God says. Now, somewhat ironically, I think it's often the case that they don't trust what God says right after going through a situation where God does something amazing and trusting him has paid off um, and been a very positive thing for Israel. Um, for instance, leading up to the Passover, Israel saw God send 10 plagues on Egypt the last one is the death of the firstborn. And God says, take the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, put some of it on the doorposts of your homes and death will pass over your household. And that's exactly what happens just like everywhere else in scripture. When God says something is gonna happen, that's what does happen. And then God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. Remember, we spoke about how they had left Egypt with the wealth of Egypt, and then they come to the Red Sea. God uses Moses to part the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across on dry ground. The Egyptian army pursues Israel because Pharaoh decided uh, it wasn't such a great idea to let them go after all, and the Egyptian army ends up drowning in the Red Sea. The Israelites you know, move on, move forward. They then come to Mount Sinai, where they receive the Ten Commandments. God speaks to the nation of Israel uh, from the mountain. And part of that is smoke and thunder and lightning and trumpets on the mountain, or at least that's how it's described. And it was so overwhelming that the people of Israel are afraid. And they asked Moses, because they're afraid, they asked Moses to speak with God on their behalf. And he does. And from that point forward, God uses prophets to speak to the nation of Israel. And one of the commandments that God gives Israel is they'll, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then, you know, moving forward to there, Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, God tells the Israelites not to build altars to other gods, not to worship idols. He's very clear about that. And then, you know, he gives several more instructions over the next few 
chapters, laws and different things. And Moses um, goes back to Mount Sinai with the elders of Israel, 70 of them. Yeah, but when he does, only Moses is allowed to speak directly with God. And when Moses speaks to the people of Israel and he tells them what God has said, everyone agrees that they will do everything God has said. And they say, yep, we'll do that. It'll all be good. In Exodus chapter 24, God says he will give Moses all the commandments on stone tablets so that he can teach them to the people. So they'll have them written down. They won't forget them. They'll be able to teach them. So God gives Moses some more instruction um, going forward. He tells him exactly how to build the tabernacle, how they're going to interact with him. Um, there's some information there about priests. And through all of this, Moses has gone for 40 days. Now, as we think back, what's happened in recent times for Israel, they've been delivered from slavery. Uh, they've seen God send all the plagues on Egypt. Um, there's been the Passover where the final plague passed over them. Uh, they carried the wealth of Egypt with them across the Red Sea, seeing the Egyptian army drown in the Red Sea. And they've asked Moses to speak with God on their behalf. And one of the last things they heard was, don't make idols out of silver or gold. So what do they do? They say, we don't know what happened to Moses. And they ask Aaron to make him an idol. They take the golden earrings they brought from Egypt. Aaron fashions a golden calf. And they say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So they, you know, right after being told not to worship idols, they almost immediately begin to worship idols. And that doesn't go well for them. It's worth a read to check it out. Um, what happens with that? It's almost kind of comical. But in all of their wandering in the wilderness and the different scenarios they face, something to make special note of is that God is teaching Israel about his character and also what he expects from them. He's teaching them about faith. And we can learn many things about God and his character um, from reading about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And after everything that happens at Mount Sinai, God brings Israel to the border of the promised land. And as they come to the border of the promised land, it's God's intention for them to go in and take the land. He says he's going to give it to them. Uh, he promised it to Abraham's descendants long, you know, long time ago. They sent spies into the land. And when the people heard the reports of the majority of the spies, even after all they've been through with God, their faith is weak and they were afraid of the people in the land and didn't believe God that would give it to them. There were a couple of spies who were like, hey, we can do this, but the majority were like, no, we can't go in, we can't do this. And as a result of that unbelief, they didn't enter the promised land. Um, they didn't believe God was gonna give it to them. They were afraid to go in. And as a result of that, God sent them into the wilderness to wander until that generation died, 40 years. And Here's a pertinent lesson in that. Unbelief means certain death. Sin equals death. And the character of God does not change. So the things we learn about God's character in his interaction with the Israelites are still applicable today. God doesn't change. His character doesn't change. The way we interact with him, the way we relate to him has changed, but his character is still the same. And there are you know, several verses in the Bible that talk about that. One of the things we learn 
in this is that not believing God equates to death. Um, belief, when we say belief, it's not just an acknowledgement of the existence of a higher power that, you know, the Israelites believed in God, but did not believe God in the sense of acting on what he says is true. There's a lot of people that have a belief in a higher power, believe in God, maybe even believe in the God of the Bible that he exists, but they don't act on what he says as if it's true. And God said he would deliver them into the promised land, but they didn't believe him. So they didn't act on what he said. And that equated to death in the wilderness for an entire generation of Israelites. And the character of God's the same today as it's always been. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You don't enter into the kingdom of God if you don't believe that, if you don't believe Jesus is the way to the Father. Unbelief means certain death. But when we say death, in this case, we're talking more than just physical death. This is spiritual death. This is a eternal separation from God and hell. Same God, same character, works in pretty much the same way. And the reason the Israelites didn't enter the promised land the first time was because they didn't believe God was going to give it to them. If you don't trust God, as the Israelites did not, you know, what's left? What do you do when you're not trusting God? Well, you turn to yourself and you trust yourself, which is what the Israelites did. And the Israelites couldn't take the promised land on their own. And they knew that. I mean, you know, they're... They've just come out of 400 years of slavery. They're not organized. They don't have an army of swords. I don't even think they'd have any weapons or anything like that. But God tells them, you know, I'm going to give this land to you. But they didn't trust God to give it to them. And that was the problem. And you can't come to the Father on your own either. A lot of people want to think that. But self-reliance and coming to God is not believing in God. That's trusting yourself. And if you are trusting in your own abilities, in your own work, trusting in yourself to reach God, reach heaven, make yourself right with God, you're going to fail and die, which is what happened to this generation of Israelites. So they turn away from the promised land. They wander off into the wilderness. And of course, they're not happy. Um, who would be? And they murmur against God. They complain. They murmur against Moses and complain for bringing them into the wilderness. And what they're doing here is they're blaming God and they're blaming Moses for the position they're in. They're kind of playing the victim, really. But we need to remember why are they in the wilderness? It's because they didn't believe God. But they're complaining that it's the fault of God and Moses, that they're wandering in the wilderness and they complain about the food too, the loaves of manna. And basically, they're kind of saying and feeling like we're the victims here. You know, it's God's fault we're here. It's Moses' fault we're here. And they had forgotten that it was their own sin that put them in the situation they were in. And they were blaming God and blaming Moses. And as a judgment and a reminder of their own sin, in Numbers 21, verses 5 and 6 say, the people spoke against God. And against Moses, why have you brought us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread or water, and our soul loathes this worthless manna. So the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the children of Israel died. This judgment and reminder seems to have worked because verse 7 goes on to say, uh, So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, and he will take away the serpents from us. 
And Moses prayed for the people. And then at that point, God instructs Moses to do something that seems kind of um, illogical, even maybe a bit ridiculous. Look at what happens next. Verse eight, the Bible says, the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent, put it on a pole, and it will be that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, will live. Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And if a certain serpent had bitten any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So Moses makes a serpent out of bronze. He puts it on a pole. And when the people look at this serpent, the poison doesn't harm him. And I mean, that's obviously pretty strange for a few reasons. The logical thing for God to do in our eyes, which would be to just get rid of the snakes. And that's what the Israelites asked for, but God doesn't do that. And even though there's a, a solution for the venom, the snakes are still there and people are still getting bit. But if they look at the bronze serpent on a pole, they live. If they don't, they die. And I think it'd be hard to think of, I don't know, anything less logical than that. It really doesn't make any sense from a human perspective, I guess you could say. An interesting thing about the serpent in the wilderness, I've heard the bronze serpent on the pole. I've heard a psychological train of thought that um, tries to make sense of this. And of course, we'll talk about it for just a sec, but then we'll get back to um, what's you know really going on here. And the idea behind the psychological thought on the serpent in the wilderness is that if you face your fear, at least this is one idea, there's probably several, but the idea is that if you face your fear, you will overcome it. And in many ways, that's true. If you're afraid of something and you face that thing, you can often overcome that fear, but it has to be done voluntarily. If someone has a fear of snakes, since we're talking about snakes, and you lock them in a room full of snakes, say their name is Bob, just for fun, and you say, um, I'm doing this for your own good, Bob. Get over your fear of snakes. Yeah, that's that's not going to work. That's not going to be helpful. But if Bob, you know, voluntarily maybe visits a zoo, maybe looks at some snakes through the glass from a distance, maybe he works up to a point where he gets a little closer and a little closer, and maybe even eventually works his way up to holding a snake, um, and he does all that voluntarily, he can overcome his fear of snakes. And that's true. And that can be a helpful lesson. And there are many philosophical and psychological lessons we can draw from the Bible like that. And those are good things. Those are important. They're useful. But they're, they're still a low-resolution view of the bigger point of what can really be learned from this, the point of it. And what God is doing in this scenario, well, in both scenarios with the entering the promised land and the bronze serpent is he's teaching Israel about faith and about his character. And one of the things we can learn about this is that, well, one of the things that we want to think about is that wise people learn from the mistakes of others. And we want to be wise people so we can read about, you know, God's interaction with the Israelites and Israelites interaction with God. And we can learn from that. Um, and as we look at the different stories, it's easy to be hard on Israel for the decisions they made, just like it's easy to be hard on Adam and Eve for the decisions they made. But at the same time, you know, the Israelites, they've never been out in the world trying to function on their own. They've always been slaves told what to do. 
And trusting God in different scenarios would be a challenge for them, just like it is for you and me. And we can always look back at these kinds of things and say, well, if I was there, I would have done things differently. If we were there in the same circumstances, we'd probably do the exact same thing. That's reality. But as Israel goes through these different situations with God, they're learning to trust God. God is teaching them to trust him. They're learning about his character and they're learning about faith. And the judgment and reminder of the serpents isn't just about God saying to the Israelites, you're bad, I'm punishing you. When something bad happens, God causes something bad to happen. It's not just about I'm punishing you. It's often about teaching and learning about faith, about the character of God. And entering the promised land and at looking at the bronze serpent, both scenarios are about trusting God. They're similar in some ways, and they're also very different in some ways. And when the Israelites come to the border of the promised land, they are faced with this scenario. God says, if you, if, if you go into this land, he's going to give you this land. If you'll step across the border, go in, take it, he's gonna give it to you. But as they look at what's ahead of them, the barriers look too difficult to overcome. They're like, oh, we can't do that. And they're right, they can't. God wants them to trust him, but they don't. And they look into the promised land and say, if we go in there, we will die. So the scenario is here, looking at what God tells the Israelites, how they view the situation, they are saying, if we do what God says, we're gonna die. Now with the poisonous serpents, God has kind of turned that back to front. He's changed the scenario from people viewing it as if we do what God tells us to do, we will die to a situation where they're in now, where if we do what God tells us to do, we will live. And it's almost like God has dumbed it down and made it so easy to do and so difficult to do otherwise that the only logical choice in a seemingly illogical situation is to believe God. There's really no other option. To trust him, to do what he says. You know, look and you will live. Look and live. And it's very simple. Look and live. And that's a lesson in faith. It's not blind. It's not ignorant. Faith is often the logical choice in what seems to be an illogical situation. Maybe it's all that's left is faith. And when you think about it, faith is often like that. We end up in a situation similar to being surrounded by poisonous serpents and God dumbs things down to a point where the easiest, simplest, most logical thing to do is to trust God in what seems like a hopeless or illogical situation. And then, well, we either choose to do that or we don't. And as I think about this, and you know, this is just my personal take on it, so you can take this with a grain of salt, but not, I'm not a betting man, but I'm, I'm just thinking about human nature, knowing, you know, worked a lot with people, know how people tend to think and act and how they react to things and do things. In the situation where Moses puts this bronze serpent up on a staff or stick or whatever it was, and he says, okay, if you look, you get bit by a snake, you look at the bronze serpent, you're going to live. And I bet there were Israelites who died because they would not look at the bronze snake on a pole. That's just the nature of humans. Uh, somebody probably said, oh, that's dumb. That can't possibly work. Or I don't believe in that kind of thing or something. Who knows? 
But like I say, that's just my speculation. But after this, the Israelites go on with life and many other things happen. Eventually, that generation dies and the Israelites go into the promised land. Um, just a little bit of a trivia about the bronze servant serpent. Uh, many years after Israel had entered the promised land, they kept this bronze serpent and they eventually turned it into uh, an idol and they worshiped it. And King Hezekiah uh, broke it into pieces, which is, you know, a big deal. That was a national heirloom and people, you know, don't like it when you do things like that. I kind of feel for Hezekiah uh, being a pastor for a long time. I shot a few sacred cows and um, people don't react well to that, but sometimes those kinds of things need to be done. Anyway, uh, eventually, that generation of Israelites dies. They go into the promised land and the story continues on. You read on throughout the Old Testament. We eventually come to the New Testament and then we come to a place where Jesus brings this event up and that's in John chapter three. And there are a couple of very well-known verses in John chapter three. Uh, if you're you know, someone who regularly reads the Bible, you, you probably already know what those are. But in this passage, Jesus has a conversation with a Pharisee, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he's giving Nicodemus uh, a lesson about faith. And well, let's read John chapter three, verses one through 15. We'll read through it. We'll talk about a couple of these verses. John chapter three, verses one through 15 say, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, he came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, but you do not know these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, even the son of man who is in heaven. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but may have eternal life. So a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to ask him some questions. And maybe he comes at night because he doesn't want other people to know that he's talking to Jesus. He's afraid of what, you know, what they might think or what they might do. You know, cancel culture is nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years. And what he says to Jesus is, is really something. He, he says, or he calls Jesus rabbi. He's respectful. And he says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, which is an interesting statement. And he also says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Two things that are especially noteworthy in that. 
even though he comes to Jesus at night, um, he's not alone. He says we, so there are obviously other people like Nicodemus who are generally trying to figure out who Jesus is. But for some reason, pride, fear, whatever, they're not there with Nicodemus. Nicodemus also says, we know you are a teacher who has come from God for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he also believes that whoever, whatever Jesus is, he's connected directly with God. So he's made a connection there. And then Jesus turns the conversation back on Nicodemus and says to him, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, which he wouldn't have had any idea this is the way the conversation was going to go. Nicodemus being a Pharisee, very likely thinks he's right with God. He's on the right track. He's on the way to seeing the kingdom of God. He works hard at keeping the law, even adds some things to it just to be safe, which is one of the problems with the Pharisees. But Jesus says something that brings that all into question. Then there's a back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus, goes through several verses, and um, there's all kinds of stuff in there. But we'll, we'll look at that another day because today we're looking at the bronze serpent as a type of Christ. Nicodemus is obviously confused and concerned. He's like, what do you mean I have to be born again. I mean, you know, how, how is that even possible? I thought I was all good. And then we come to the point where Jesus says something to Nicodemus to help him better understand what he's talking about. He gives him an illustration. He brings up a time in Israel's history that Nicodemus would know well, that probably any Israelite would know well, I suppose. And that's when the Israelites were plagued by the poisonous serpents in the wilderness. And that bronze serpent, um, was a well-known symbol and story of God's provision and deliverance. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but may have eternal life. And after this, we don't know what happens to Nicodemus. You know, I'd be really curious to find out. And I guess one day we will. But, you know, he may have been, went back to doing what he was doing, or he may have decided to follow Jesus, or um, what I think maybe is more likely is that he may have understood what Jesus was talking about after Jesus was crucified. But it's an illogical situation. I need, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again. He's like, what are you talking about? How, you know, once how can a man enter into the womb and be born again? And he's confused. And just like today, during the time of Nicodemus and Jesus, there were all kinds of problems in the world, just like there are now. I mean, Jesus is always dealing with people who have different kinds of problems, people who need uh, to be healed, people with health problems. There's problems with the government. People struggle with all kinds of things. And at the time, the Jewish people are looking for a savior who will cast off the oppressive Roman Empire. And some are maybe wondering if Jesus is that savior. That's what they expected in a savior. But what Jesus is telling Nicodemus doesn't seem to have anything to do with any of that. He's not offering to solve the world's problems. He's telling Nicodemus that to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And to be born again, like the serpent 
in the wilderness, he must look and live, but not at that serpent. That's only a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. Look to the son of man and live. He's the source of eternal life, the king to the kingdom of God. Not only, you know, not only is this serpent a type of Christ and a foreshadowing of Christ, the whole story of the Israelites in the wilderness, the poisonous serpents, the bronze serpent, um, that whole story to me is archetypical of mankind. It's, it's all applicable to all people through all time. You know, the deadly serpents, the poison, the death are like sin in the world. Um, the people complaining, the lack of belief, the lack of trust in God, the lack of, you know, victor, blaming other people, the idea that we're victims here are just like people throughout time. And I'm sure you hear it as well, but I hear questions all the time. Why doesn't God fix this? Why doesn't God do that? Why does God allow bad things to happen? Uh, Moses, you know, just it's just like the Israelites saying, Moses, tell God to get rid of these snakes. It's the same story. God, get rid of the source of our suffering. You know, and if God were real and all powerful, he would do that. And that's the mentality of many people. And sometimes they use that as an excuse to write off God because he doesn't do things the way that they think he should. And, you know, why is there suffering in the world? That's a big topic. And there are many answers for that. Most of them incomplete, but, you know, there are answers to it. But basically, you can boil it down to this. God allows it for his purpose and the thoughts of mankind on how God handles things are of very little consequence. As humans, we often think way too much of ourselves. And I think we would be far happier if we stopped doing that. People complain about everything. Um, you know, the stuff that's wrong in the world, sin, all the time. But at the same time, as we complain, we act like we're not the source of our own problems. And people say things like, why doesn't God make things the way, you know, I think they should be, basically is what they're saying. Now, to us, if God is able to fix those things, if God is who he says he is, it seems logical to us that he would fix those things in the way that we would see appropriate. And it seems illogical for him not to. So if God can fix things, why doesn't he? Sometimes it's difficult to reconcile God's omnipotence with in a world that's filled with evil and sin. And I'm sure it was also difficult for the Israelites to reconcile why God didn't just get rid of the snakes, which is what they asked for. But instead, his answer is not to get rid of the snakes, but to look and live. You know, people were still getting bit by the snakes. The snakes are still present. I'm still sure it would have still hurt to get bit by a snake. But if they look at the bronze serpent, they live. And there's still going to be snakes. Sin and evil are not going away. But God says, if you look where I tell you to look, you will live. And that's how God works. And how people feel about that is frankly pretty irrelevant. In the wilderness, the Israelites were to look at the serpent. The bronze serpent looked like the judgment and the penalty for their sin. It looked like the thing that was plaguing them, which is interesting. They had to look at the judgment on their sin to be rescued from it. And in many ways, that's like the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus looked like the judgment and the punishment that we should receive for sin. 
And it's a reminder of our sin. I mean, you, if, if you understand the cross, you can't look at the cross without being reminded of sin, but it's on that cross that Christ has made the payment for our sins. And like the Israelites in the wilderness look to the bronze serpent and live, we look to the cross. We look to Jesus and live. Now, if we follow on from our passage, John 3, um, up to verse 15, the next couple of verses are arguably the best known, or at least they're, they're certainly some of the best known, maybe arguably the best known verses in all of scripture. They've been printed on millions of tracts, have been used in witnessing and all that kind of stuff forever. John chapter three, verses 16 and 17, which say, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's interesting that those verses are part of Jesus explaining to Nicodemus how the serpent in the wilderness points to him. And we often you know, don't realize that they're actually in that context. But Jesus also explains a couple of crucial differences between himself and this serpent. Unlike the serpents, he was sent out of love, not judgment. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. There are important similarities. You know, God didn't remove the serpents, just like sin and suffering still exists. And the means of salvation from the problem is still very, very simple, even if it seems illogical to some look and live. People are concerned about what's going on in the world all the time. I'm concerned about it. You're concerned about it. We see what's happening and it bothers us. We worry about it. And we may ask, why is there suffering? Why is there evil? If God is able to to fix it, why doesn't he fix the problem? But the problem that should concern us first and foremost is not what's going on in the world, the problems out there, but the problem within each of us. And that is our own sinful nature. And Jesus is the solution to that problem. Look to Jesus and live. Now, there will come a time when those who look to Jesus will enter fully into the presence of the Lord and all of the other problems in the world will be solved. There's going to be a time Jesus is going to return. Um, The world will be made new. Everything's going to be set straight. Everything's going to be great. And, you know, it's... there's a time when those who know Jesus will enter into, you know, that eternal heaven with God. And it's, you know, you can draw a bit of a parallel there when the Lord, you know, eventually leads Israel into the promised land after the other generation had died off. But if you're going to be part of that eternity in heaven with God, then you need to look to Jesus and live now because there's no other way. If you're self-reliant, um, in knowing God and coming to God, ultimately you're going to fail. And that's why God sent his son, not to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. And, you know, maybe that's the first time you've heard that. Maybe that's the first time you've understood that. Maybe you haven't heard it put like that before. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. Um, maybe you're someone who's known Jesus for a long time, and hopefully maybe you can draw a couple of things from that that might be helpful in sharing him with others. But if 
that's the first time you've heard that or understood that, you can be part of that. You can be part of that eternal kingdom of God and be in heaven with him forever. When you look to Jesus and live, that's the gospel message. Um, God sent his son to save us. And we look to him in faith and we live. And that's a free gift. You can accept that where you are. You look to Jesus, turn away from yourself, turn away from your sin, turn away from the world and turn to him and pray. Ask him to save you and he will. And yeah, I hope you find that helpful and I hope that's something you'll do because uh, yeah, maybe we'll get to meet in heaven someday. And I certainly look forward to that. But until that time, we're going to keep doing what we're doing and, and spreading God's word and yeah, leading people to Jesus. And I hope that you will help do that. And one of the ways you can do that is by uh, sharing the podcast with people, you know, sharing the social media stuff with people that PC speaking, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. Um, not trying to sell it, but just, you know, it's, it's a method that we can use. You can help reach people. And I hope you do that. But whatever you decide to do, I'll be praying for you. And I do pray for you guys daily and I'm grateful for you. And yeah, I look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, I'll be praying for you. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 